The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Good morning, Marsh Chapel. Thank you so much uh, for joining us and coming this particularly muggy and swampy Sunday. Uh, I just want to give a brief announcement um, before we get into things for those of us that are in the uh, sanctuary right now. If you would like, we have fans um, at the entrance. If anyone needs something to help cool yourself off, um, now is probably a good time to slip out and get one if that's something that you need. Um, Wonderful. We gather on this Sabbath Sunday to worship God in time and space with word and song and for spirit and truth. My name is Jonathan Lee, and I have the privilege of serving as the Associate Chaplain for Student Outreach here at Marsh Chapel. Whether this is your first Sunday or your 100th Sunday here at Marsh Chapel, whether you are seated in the pews or joining us remotely through our phone or video live streams, Marsh Chapel welcomes you to worship this day. We are so grateful for your presence this morning. This Sunday, we continue our national summer preaching series on Matthew and the cost of discipleship. Today's preacher will be the Reverend David Romanek. Reverend David Romanek has served as the rector of the Episcopal Church of the Heavenly Rest in Abilene, Texas, since 2019. Before earning a Master's in Divinity at Virginia Theological Seminary, he attended Boston University, where he sang in the Marsh Chapel Choir and worked as a chapel associate. He is married to Sarah Best whom he met in the choir, and they have three children. Reverend Romanek, thank you so much for joining us in worship today. The Psalms tell us and remind us to sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing and give praise to God's name. Tell the good news of salvation from day to day. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. As Abel, please stand in the praise of God.
pray in one voice the collect printed in your bulletin. O Lord, mercifully receive the prayers of your people who call upon you and grant that they may know and understand what things they ought to do and also may have grace and power faithfully to accomplish them. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. The proof of God's amazing love is this. While we were sinners, Christ lived and died for us. Because we have faith in him, we dare to approach God with confidence. Beloved family of Christ, may we all enter into a moment of confession with confidence knowing that God hears and holds every joy and burden on our hearts. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, yet we are justified by the gift of God's grace through the redemption that is ours in Christ Jesus. Trusting in God's mercy, let us confess our sin in word and prayer as the choir guides us with song. we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thanks Thanks be to God. A lesson from the book of Genesis, chapter 25, verses 19 through 34. These are the descendants of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was forty years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel the Aramean of Paddan Aram, sister of Laban the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and his wife Rebekah conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is to be this way, why do I live? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb and two peoples born of you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the elder shall serve the younger. When her time came to give birth was at hand, there were twins in her womb. The first came out all red, his body like a hairy mantle, so they named him Esau. Afterward his brother came out, with his hand gripping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was sixty years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field while Jacob was a quiet man, living in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he was fond of game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking a stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was famished. Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stuff, for I am famished. Therefore he was called Edom. Jacob said, First sell me your birthright. Esau said, I am about to die. What use is the birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me first. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. The word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God.
A lesson from St. Paul's Epistle to the Romans, chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and to deal with sin, he condemned the sin in the flesh, so that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and the peace. For this reason, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to, the, to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh. You are in the Spirit, since the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give, will give life to your mortal bodies also through his Spirit that dwells in you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me in reading responsively Psalm 119 as well as in singing the antiphon. my path. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to observe your righteous ordinances. I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Accept my offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach me your ordinances. I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me. I do not stray from your precepts. Your decrees are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. Please rise as you are able for the Gloria Patri and for the reading of the Gospel lesson. According to St. Matthew chapter 13, verses 1 through 9 and 18 through 23, 
Glory to you, O Lord. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. Such great crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat there while the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, Listen, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell on the path, and the birds came and ate them up. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and they sprang up quickly since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and brought forth grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Let anyone with ears listen. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what is sown in the heart. This is what was sown on the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet such a person has no root, but endures only for a while. And when trouble or persecution arises on account of the word, that person immediately falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the lure of wealth choke the word, and it yields nothing. But as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, and another sixty, and in another thirty. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies. May Jesus Christ be praised and glorified both now and unto the ages of ages. Amen. Well, good morning. It's wonderful to be here with you today. I am so grateful to Dean Hill for his invitation to preach this morning, both to our in-house congregation and also to our live-streamed uh, viewers. I want to thank uh, Jonathan for his hospitality uh, this morning. Um, and I bring you greetings from the Church of the Heavenly Rest in Abilene, Texas, and from the Episcopal Diocese of Northwest Texas. But on a personal note, it is always such a thrill to be back here at Marsh Chapel, a place, the place where I was married, the place where in many ways I came of age, um, and the place where I really feel a spiritual kinship that endures across the miles. And I'm particularly excited today to welcome all three of my daughters here. It's wonderful to be here with you today. And speaking of daughters, a few weeks ago, my nine-year-old had her very first experience of sleepaway camp at St. Crispin's Camp and Conference Center in the Episcopal Diocese of Oklahoma. And I was incredibly excited for Cece to go to camp. Not because I wanted to get rid of her for a week, I promise, because I knew she would have a wonderful time. And sure enough, when I picked her up, she couldn't stop talking about how much fun she had. She loved all the activities, from swimming to kayaking to making friendship bracelets, and I was very heartened to hear worship. She really enjoyed that too. And she also loved all those idiosyncratic camp experiences that make it feel like a different world. The boisterous graces before meals, the roll call at the beginning of every activity, and the ways each cabin created their own culture in just a few days. But if I'm honest, my excitement for Cece's camp experience had as much to do with her having a good time as it did with my own desire to relive my own camp experience because, my friends, I loved camp as a kid. From junior high through high school, I was privileged to spend a week or two every summer at Camp Washington the Episcopal Camp and Conference Center in Connecticut. I was a devoted camper, participating in just about everything Camp Washington had to offer over the years, 
from sleepaway camp, the regular kind, to theater camp, to choir camp, to wilderness challenge camp, to this experimental outreach camp where we traveled throughout the area and did things like sort produce in the 90-degree heat for a food bank. I still think of that experience every time I smell an overripe tomato. And from what I've been able to gather, most people who went to camp when they were young have a similar appreciation for the experience. In fact, my friend Charles told me that camp is what he thought heaven might be like. Charles is going to make an appearance later in the sermon. And I don't think that's a bad analogy. Because on one level, camp is a place where we get to experience a version of that endless Sabbath rest that is described in Scripture. That place where even the chores feel restful. That place where we can see firsthand the ways that our responsibilities to one another build up the community. But on an even deeper level, Camp is the first opportunity that many people have to try out being their own person, unburdened by expectations or assumptions. For many people, camp is the first time they can offer a truly authentic version of themselves to the people around them. This morning, we hear in Matthew's Gospel the parable of the sower. And while I can't say this with certainty, I would venture that this is the most carefully explained parable in the Gospels. It appears in both Matthew and Mark, and unusually, there is very little difference between these two versions. And specifically, both versions of this parable include the explanatory follow-up, that bit where Jesus explains to the disciples what his illustrations refer to. And this is kind of unexpected. Generally, Jesus is perfectly content to leave his hearers mystified by his parables. In some cases, he says that is his intention. But in the parable of the sower, Jesus takes care to ensure that we understand that these seeds sown in various places represent different postures towards the word of the kingdom. The seeds sown on the path are those who hear the word and cannot understand it. The seeds sown on rocky soil are those who cannot stay committed to the message. The seeds sown among the thorns are those who are distracted by the world and its temptations. And the seeds sown on good soil are those whose commitment to the kingdom of God will endure. Now what's intriguing to me is that the initial parable doesn't seem to require such a careful explanation. The imagery is pretty straightforward, even to someone who is unfamiliar with horticulture like me. Even I would get the point that Jesus is making. There are much more mystifying parables in the Gospels that do not benefit from this secondary explanation. Moreover, the point that Jesus makes seems pretty self-evident on its face. There are going to be people who hear this message about the reign of God and for whatever reason can't commit to it. You should do your best to make sure you are not one of those people. One wonders if Jesus really needed all this imagery of seed and soil to get that fairly obvious point across. But of course, this all assumes that we are meant to focus on the seeds and the soil in this parable, that our Lord's purpose is to encourage us to cultivate good soil within ourselves. And while I'm sure that that is part of the intent, I suspect that the primary reason this parable and its explanation are structured in the way they are is so that we focus not on the soil, but on the sower. 
Indeed, one of the effects of hearing about all these various places where the seed is being sown is to ask ourselves, what the heck is going on with this guy? The sower casts about with abandon, irrespective of where the seed might land. There's no scientific consideration of the best place to plant the seeds, no impulse to conserve the seeds for the soil that will have the highest yield. And this leads us to ask, why is this sower being so profligate, so indiscriminate, so willing to toss seeds in places where they might not even germinate, let alone bear fruit? Now, from a practical perspective, part of the answer to these questions may lie in the nature of agriculture in first century Palestine. Crops were fertilized by roving livestock, watered by infrequent rains. We would appreciate some of those today. A farmer couldn't afford to depend on one patch of fertile soil, and so he had to cast the net wider, sowing in unexpected places. From a theological perspective, one of the central themes of Scripture is the notion that with God, there is always enough. The idea of hoarding seeds unless it is guaranteed to bear fruit is inconsistent with a biblical witness that testifies to a God who shares abundantly with God's people. But perhaps the most compelling explanation of this parable is the simplest. The sower sows because it is in his nature to do so. The sower sows because it is in his nature to do so. After all, Jesus begins the parable by saying, a sower went out to sow. That's what sowers do. And it would seem that if they are being true to their nature, sowers sow without regard for potential success. Thus, by sowing seed profligately, indiscriminately, the sower offers an authentic version of himself to the world. And it's here that this parable gets really interesting. It's here that this parable begins to reveal something essential about the Christian life. Because if the sower sows without regard for the outcome of the sowing, then there is a profound cost to being the sower. If the sower is true to his nature and sows with abandon, then the sower will be set up for disappointment even failure. Notice that Jesus tells his hearers that there are seeds that will fall on the path or will fall on the rocky soil, will fall among the thorns. It is inevitable. In other words, the seeds we sow are not guaranteed to bear fruit. The sower is called to sow despite the strong possibility, even likelihood, of failure. And if you think about it, the message of this parable is astonishingly difficult. If we offer an authentic version of ourselves to the world if we are true to our nature, if we do what we are called to do as persons created in the image of God, then we might fail. We are likely to fail. How often do our efforts to build up a community of love get snatched away through jealousy or shrivel up due to lack of interest? or get lost among the swift and varied changes of the world. The cost of being the sower, the cost of discipleship, 
is that living an authentic Christian life, being responsible to the people around us, often looks like failure in the eyes of the world. And yet, as my bishop Scott Mayer likes to point out all the time, the principal metric of the Christian life is not success and failure. The primary measure of the Christian life is death and resurrection. Jesus' earthly ministry ended in degradation, condemnation, and death of the cross. By all accounts, it should have been judged a failure. And yet, even in that lowest moment, Jesus trusted that if he was true to his nature, if he was true to his vocation, then even his rejection at the hands of the powers of this world would be vindicated and redeemed. The resurrection means that failure does not define us as individuals or as a community. The resurrection means that what we do in this life, regardless of whether it seems to bear fruit, that what we do matters in ways that we cannot fully appreciate on this side of glory. The resurrection means that even those seeds that were snatched from the path or scorched by the sun or lost among the thorns, that even those seeds have a future in God. And all of this brings me back to summer camp and my friend Charles. I told you he'd be back. Charles was working at the Church of the Redeemer in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania, when I started serving there a number of years ago. And we hit it off almost immediately. We spent hours talking about pretty much anything that came to mind. Scripture, theology, culture, politics, video games, even though I don't play video games, you name it. About a year into our friendship, Charles had to spend some time in the hospital, and I went up to see him. And after cycling through our normal topics for a while, Charles, noting that we had both grown up in Connecticut, asked if I had ever spent any time at Camp Washington growing up. And I said, big time. I told him about my love for camp, the fact that I had participated in just about every camp opportunity that was offered, that it remains one of the special places in my life. And Charles replied by enthusiastically reviewing his own camp experience at Camp Washington, noting that he had even attended this experimental outreach camp that Camp Washington had offered. He went on to recall sorting produce in 90-degree heat and observed that he can't smell an overripe tomato without thinking of that experience. And I felt the color drain from my face as I suddenly recognized Charles. And I know this sounds crazy or overwrought, but I felt like Mary Magdalene recognizing Jesus by the empty tomb. I said quietly, Charles, I think we went to camp together. And sure enough, after examining some old photos and other mementos, we realized that we had not only gone to camp together, we had been close enough camp friends that we sent each other birthday cards for several years. I'd forgotten completely about him. And now we joke that we are each other's oldest friends. And ever since we realized this camp connection, there is part of me that wonders if my reconnection with Charles is a glimpse of God's reign, a taste of the resurrection, an indication of what happens when we keep sowing our seeds 
Because as wonderful as camp is, it is ephemeral. It lasts for the time it lasts. And the experiences and relationships established there are gradually lost over time. And yet here was a camp friendship that was being held in some secret place, waiting to be rediscovered and redeemed. Becoming friends with Charles all those years ago mattered in ways that I could not fully appreciate before we reconnected. And this is the promise of the resurrection, isn't it? that the connections we make in this life, this beautiful, ephemeral life, that these connections matter in ways that we cannot fully comprehend. We are all called to be sowers of one kind or another. No matter who we are or where we come from, no matter what our gifts for ministry may be, no matter how long it has been since we actively engaged with our faith, we are called to sow the seeds of God's reign by finding ways to be responsible to one another. And while there will be times that our seed lands in places that will not bear fruit, while there will be times that we will not see the results of our efforts, our call is to continue sowing, trusting that through the power of the resurrection all our efforts will be redeemed and not one seed will be lost. letter to the Philippians, he advised, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. So let us heed his advice and pray. You are welcome to stand 
remain seated, or come forward to kneel at the altar rail. Now let us sing together hymn 473, Lead Me, Lord. Merciful and loving God, we join in glad adoration to praise you, for you are our God. We trust in your unending love, and we are thankful for your grace. For though we have sinned, you sent your own Son in our likeness to set us free from sin and death. O God of salvation, you are our hope. We adore you and strive to live a life worthy of your love and grace. But we confess that we fall short. In the midst of hate-filled speech, cruelty, violence, and indifference to the suffering of others, we ask you to deliver us from evil. Search our hearts and minds, God, and make us self-aware of our own sinful nature and let it not rule over us. We thank you for your lamp and light and offer ourselves to you. Help us to know your ways, teach us your paths, and lead us in your truth. We humbly ask that you grant us forgiveness and help us to forgive others. We ask for discernment to recognize the evil around us. Give us the voice to speak out and the courage and will to take action against it. God of peace, fill us with your spirit and equip us to your will. God of compassion and all comfort, we pray for our siblings who are enduring floods, fires, landslides, tornadoes, heat waves, and other forces of nature. We ask for peace of mind for all who are in despair. We pray for people who are targeted for acts of violence and oppression. God, our deliverer, provide your tender mercies for the sick the grief-stricken, and all who feel helpless as they or their loved ones struggle with mental illness, drug addiction, dementia, fatal illnesses, or the aftermath of violence. Help us all to realize that we aren't helpless. We are thankful that you are our refuge and strength. We are anxious given the state of our communities, our nation, and the world. We pray for help, healing, and hope. Help us not to have a worldly focus on that which is seen, but to have a hopeful focus on that which is eternal. We offer our prayers secure in knowing that if we ask, you will answer. Spirit of God, dwell within us so that we have the hopeful patience to wait for you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Amen. And now we as a people of God pray together the prayer from our Lord Christ. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.
We now enter into the time of worship set aside to bring our offerings and tithes to God. As the ushers make their way down, to, down the pews, let us return a portion of what God has given us as a sign of our participation in a new way of life and being, that of the kingdom of God. Holy Creator, giver of life, source of love, we thank you for the gifts of time, talent, and resources you have given us this week. Receive the offerings that we return back to you. 
our gratitude for your goodness, penitence for our pride, and dedication to your service. Though we stumble and fall, help us to rise again with your mercy and grace and use us to build your church, the body of Christ. Through the one who gave himself for us, Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. May God give you the courage to sow abundantly and love with abandon. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be with you and remain with you always. Amen. Amen.